One of the favorite pastimes of Americans is complaining about the boss, right? And now that the election is over, we can get back and work places all across this fair land to complaining about the boss. Or maybe you're complaining about the new boss that just got elected as president. I don't know. But while in the workplace, um, it's popular to rip the boss. There is no doubt, and all bosses, no one's exempt. There are no doubt some more deserving, right, of complaint than others. I present Mike Davis, who is also known as Tiger Mike. Check this out. When this fellow passed away in September, just a couple of months ago, the New York Times ran this headline. World's grumpiest boss dies at 85. Whether it was his sour attitude, his difficult temperament, or his allegedly shady business dealings, um, Mike, Tiger Mike, had quite a reputation. Um, he started, Mike Davis, as a chauffeur and worked his way up to be an oil and gas magnet in the city of Houston and earned this title, World's Worst Boss or World's Grumpiest Boss. Throughout his career, um, this title was, was documented through a series of memos over the decades that he sent to his employees. January 11, 1978. He sent the following terse memo to all of his employees. Quote, Idle conversation and gossip in this office among employees will result in immediate termination. Do your jobs and keep your mouth shut! Exclamation point. Memo from the boss. In another memo, Davis communicated the following. Quote, Do not speak to me when you see me. If I want to speak to you, I will do so. I want to save my throat. I don't want to ruin it by saying hello to all of you. Now, you think that's supposed to be funny. It, it wasn't supposed to be funny. Guy's serious. Uh, later, he banned office birthday parties with the following memo, quote, There will be no more birthday celebrations, birthday cakes, levity, or celebrations of any kind within the office. This is a business office. If you have to celebrate, do it after hours or on your own time. My personal favorite, though, this is my favorite. Um, this was the memo where he explains why he gets to use profanity but the employees don't, okay? I swear, but since I am the owner of this company, that is my privilege. And this privilege is not to be interpreted as the same for any employee. That differentiates me from you, and I want to keep it that way. There will be absolutely no swearing by any employee, male or female, in this office ever. Well, I'd never heard of the guy. Uh, until he passed away, and these obits started showing up in places like the New York Times. Um, but it got me to thinking, you know. In many, in many ways, those memos get at the core of why we love to complain about our bosses, whether it's this attitude that's either explicit or implicit that's conveyed of the no-fun zone, okay, at the office, whether it is the duplicity of do what I say, not what I do, okay? 
or whether it is just the general grumpiness and prohibitions about talking in the office or saying hello, um, I think those are some of the things that, that get us going, right? Uh, maybe not quite as extreme as Tiger Mike, but every office has some of that. So what about the boss of bosses? What about the CEO of the universe, the Lord? How would you describe God? Now, whether it's describing God or telling someone about your spouse or a good friend or describing your child, the more fully and completely you know them, the more accurately and the more beautifully you can describe them. So back to the boss of bosses. How would you describe God? More importantly, how does your image of the Lord change the way you worship and change the way you live? The Lord wants, for me, for you, for each person, to really get to know him deeply. He wants for us to appreciate, to the extent we can, his faithfulness, his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness, his justice, his love. And when we come to know God more fully, more deeply, I think it changes the way we pray I think it changes the way we feel about ourselves, certainly the way we feel about God, and it changes the way we live. So the series we're starting is called Take It In. And what we're going to be doing, well, let's start with this. The focus of religion, let's start with the other side. The focus of religion so often, the focus of preaching so often is, here's what you need to do. Or here's what you need to stop doing, right? Or here's what you need to do better. That is oftentimes the focus of religion, and those topics should be raised. Those are not unimportant things to talk about. But how about drilling down deeper and pausing to consider God? Who is God? What is all this other stuff even about? And so we need to start by, I think, following his advice in Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Before you talk about all that other stuff, just, just be quiet and know me. Know me. Unless we're willing to do that, to be still, to be quiet, to spend time getting to know God, to, to, to move in deeper fellowship with God, then we end up with incomplete and inaccurate ideas about God that affect everything, right? Um, is God a grouchy boss? Is the Bible a collection of grouchy memos from a grouchy boss trying to order us around? Well, if you see God that way, then you worship God or you're running from a God, either way, who is trying to regulate your life, and take all of the joy out of your day-to-day -day existence. But, if you're willing to slow down and take in the beauty of His heart, the beauty that Scripture reveals about God, 
then you will not only get to know him better, but since you are his creation, you were his idea, then you get to know yourself better, and you'll be better able to to see your potential and to become a better person. So here we go. For starters, um, God is holy. We talked about this word a little bit in that series on 1 Peter, the different series. Um, No one else anywhere in the universe can honestly say, I am holy. Nobody gets to say that except God. And I think the holiness of God is a good place to start Because it is the thing that is only true of God. And while we, yes, we are made holy through the blood of Jesus, there's no one who's holy in and of themselves but God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is on the outline this morning. This is kind of that key idea. There is only one in the entire universe who can honestly say, I am holy. And the lie detector needle doesn't, doesn't, you know, register because it's true. Holy means, we've talked about this, it means separate. It means different. Um, And one reason everybody, look, this past week has been a lot of fun around the United States, right? I mean, one reason everybody gets so worked up when it's time to pick a new president or when the ballot counting is done, one of the reasons people get so worked up is that the only choices we are given are imperfect ones, okay? Um, we only have the option for vo- to vote for a sinner, right? Um, and to greater and, uh, greater and lesser extents to other people like us who have fallen short, who have defects, I heard people talking about this election as, wow, this is, this is an election between the lesser of two evils. Look, every election, every election, starting with George Washington, I don't even know if he was opposed, right? Probably not. But every election has been a choice between the lesser of two evils. It's always been that way. Perfect is not on the ballot, okay? Unless... Unless we're talking about the world, the eternal reality behind and underneath and surrounding this temporal reality, God, the eternal supreme being of the universe, isn't imperfect. He's holy, he's separate, he's different. He's the one who has never sinned, has never slipped up, has never had to attempt some sort of cover-up because he has nothing to hide. He is perfect. He's holy. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone alone. No one good. No candidate. 100% good. No missionary. 100% good. 
good. No volunteer at a homeless shelter. No pope, no pastor, no preacher, no Mother Teresa is good in the purest sense of the word. And that means, well, it means I'm not good. It means you're not good. And I bet at this point you're really thinking, man, I'm looking forward to this new series. Wow, this is going to be great. Real upbeat. Gordon, that's, this is exactly the shot in the arm I needed to get my week started off telling me I'm no good. Well, hang with me here. Because for the good news to be good news, you've got to appreciate how bad the bad news is. Um, so only God is good. This should scare us. I mean, the holiness of God is one of the big reasons from beginning to end in the Bible that phrase, the fear of the Lord, is used so many times. Because when God's goodness, when God's holiness collides with my darkness, that's kind of scary. But also, it brings us hope. I mean, this world is full to the brim of chaos and evil and disappointments and betrayals. We see that. But the goodness of God reminds us this isn't all there is. This isn't the end of the story. There is a holy God who is good enough and strong enough to make all things right. Amen? So, yeah, the holiness of God should scare us a little bit. Because in the bright light of His goodness, we see ourselves more clearly. And this gets us back to how two people can read the Old Testament and come away with totally different impressions or images of God. Depending on how you see God, you will encounter the Old Testament. Depending on how you encounter the Old Testament, you will see God. Hundreds of laws, hundreds of ordinances, regulations, commands, hundreds of memos from the boss in the Old Testament. But we've been told... Which ones are the top ten? What are the biggies? What are the ten commandments? We know those. And one of the most important jobs, probably the most important job of the ten commandments, is to help me see, to help me come to terms with my own persistent lack of holiness. I mean, we always, Ten Commandments, that's stuff we're supposed to obey. Yeah, it's also stuff that's supposed to show us who we really are. Look, I mean, if these are God's top, down to ten, and there are only ten, and I can't even keep the short list out of hundreds of commands, then I realize how good God is and how not good I am. And that's one of the purposes of the law. I mean, there isn't, if I'm honest with you today, there isn't one of those commandments on that list that I have fully kept. Not one. Now you're thinking, hang on a second, Gordon, you've never murdered anybody uh, or anything like that. Well, 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, talking about the Ten Commandments, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, if you have ever been angry with your brother, if you ever called your brother raka, that means like idiot or fool, if you've ever said that or if you've ever felt that anger in your heart, then you have broken that commandment because the spirit of the commandment against killing is anger. Okay, so I guess I haven't kept that one. Um, haven't committed adultery. I've never cheated on my wife. Jesus comes along as I'm patting myself on the back in Matthew chapter 5 and says, Have you lusted? If you've looked on another woman with lust in your heart, then you have broken the commandment. You've committed adultery in your heart. So I've broken those. Um, then there's that commandment, you know, don't lie, false witness. Uh, I've broken that a few times. Actually, whoops, just broke it again. Because I've broken it more than a few times. Every exaggeration, every embellishment, every hidden truth that I've covered up so someone could not see it, every outright lie, I've broken that commandment plenty of times. So there isn't one of these commandments that I have fully kept. Again, we're, talking, we're only talking about the top ten here, okay? So the takeaway for some, for some people, the takeaway from the Old Testament is, wow, God is so mean coming up with, with these commandments that I can't possibly keep. Or for others, it's to walk away with humility and trembling and turn to God and say, thank you for honestly speaking to me. Thank you for honestly helping me see myself and my darkness more clearly. Second thing on the outline, my unholiness, my unholiness or my sinfulness is revealed clearly by my complete inability to even uphold the most basic moral principles. God's top ten list. We, you and I, and all people, we become rather good at justifying our behavior, justifying our mistakes, generally convincing ourselves that we're better people than we are, certainly trying to convince others that we are better people than we are. And the law of God comes along and it just smashes that. It just pushes over that house of cards that we've built. And that's its job. That's its job. As the book of Romans says, chapter 3, verse 20, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply what? Simply shows us how sinful we are. And boy, does it do a good job of that. The first job of your doctor before prescribing any medicines or talking about treatment options for whatever ails you, the first job of your doctor, and in many ways the most important job of your doctor, is to give you an honest assessment of your health, to diagnose 
whatever it is that ails you. And that isn't about your doctor wanting to say mean things to you or make you squirm or make you uncomfortable or worry you or your doctor somehow delighting in giving you bad news. It's your doctor doing your doctor's job, your, the job to get you better, to make you whole, to make you healthy. And the law of God is really the ultimate spiritual diagnostic tool, it helps us to see what's wrong with ourselves. Now, you can certainly ignore what God has to say. You can choose not to believe in God, or you can continue this propaganda campaign of trying to convince yourself and others that you're actually a good person, or you can move toward wholeness. The biblical word for that moment, that turning point, is repentance. That moment where God gives you his assessment and you say, you're right. You're right. I'm not good. I'm not holy. Your diagnosis of my sin problem is spot on. You don't have to be a believer. You don't have to believe in God or be a Christian to recognize that sin is a bad thing. And whether you believe in God or not, adultery still has the destructive power to blow up your marriage and to wound your children. Whether you believe in God or not, your addictions still have the power to enslave and destroy. Whether you believe or not, the choice you make to live selfishly with your money, with your time, with your talents, to make it all serve you is robbing this world full of pain and misery of the blessing that you were intended to bring it. Those are real consequences. Sin has consequences. You don't have to believe in Jesus to recognize that. But here's the thing. You do need to believe in Jesus to be set free from it. Timothy Keller, I'll just quote him, author, pastor. He wrote one time, this is about that whole idea. I can be a good person. I don't need God for that, okay? All right, Timothy Keller. We often hear someone say, well, I'm not very religious, but I'm a good person, and that is what is most important. Keller says, but is that true? Imagine a woman, a poor widow, with an only son. She teaches him how she wants him to live, to always tell the truth to work hard, and to help the poor. She makes very little money, but with her meager savings, she is able to put him through college. Imagine that when he graduates, he hardly ever speaks to her again. He occasionally sends a Christmas card, but doesn't visit her, won't answer her phone calls or letters, doesn't speak to her. But 
He lives just like she taught him, honestly, industriously, and charitably. Keller asks, would you say this was acceptable? Of course not. Would we say that by living a quote-unquote good good life, but neglecting a relationship with the one whom he owed everything, that he was doing something commendable? In the same way God created us, and we owe him everything, and we do not live for him, but we, quote, live a good life, that's not enough. We owe a debt that must be paid. Now that gets us to the good news. Jesus was sent by God the Father. Jesus, the Son of God, comes from heaven to earth in this cosmic rescue mission to save sinners. That's you and me. Jesus, fully God, that means holy and good and righteous and loving Fully God, He became a human being. So Father God sent the Son, Jesus, to accomplish what He and He alone could, as fully God and fully man could do, and that's reconcile us. Jesus lived here as a person, a fully moral and perfect life, and surrendered that life to become a substitute for us taking on his back the punishment of the sins that we deserved. Now, if you believe on him, and that means believing on the good news about him, his death, burial, and resurrection, then your sins can be forgiven, you can be set free, and you can turn into this brand new person, growing up into that potential which has always existed for you. Paul writes to a bunch of sinners in Colossia who had accepted Jesus. And he writes these words about people just like us. Colossians 1. At one time, you were separated from God. You were his enemies in your minds. And the evil things that you did were against God. But God has made you his friends again. He did this through Christ's death in the body so that he might bring you into God's presence as people who are holy with no wrong and with nothing of which God can judge you guilty. Sins washed away. So what will you do with that? What will you do with Jesus? That's the fundamental question that comes out of the New Testament. What will you do with Jesus? Write this down on the outline. My sin and separation from God have been dealt with on the cross because of Christ's sacrifice. I am holy. He has justified me in God's presence through his 
sacrifice. Have you guys ever heard of that show? CBS program, Undercover Boss. You've heard of that? Yeah. It's a good show. Good show. Um, pretty simple, really, and pretty ingenious. The boss of some, the CEO of some major corporation here in the U.S. is going to go undercover to kind of spy on, to kind of see what's going on in the business, right? So wears a disguise, creates a phony backstory, and arrives at some local store or at some warehouse to keep an eye on things. And at the end of the show, some of the employees get promotions and some of them get fired, okay? That's how the show works, and it's a pretty good watch, honestly. The Gospels come along and they give us a different version of Undercover Boss. At Bethlehem, the CEO of the universe was born incognito, in disguise, wrapped up in human flesh, to live as one of us. He didn't come to spy on us. He didn't come to trip us up. But because of his great love, he came to save us by offering his life for us on the cross to forgive our transgressions and make us holy, bring us back into fellowship with God. And in a world where people love to hate their bosses, this one's different, okay? This one came to serve. This one humbled himself. This one was born into the brokenness of this world. This one, because of his great love for you and me, he went to the cross. And he died for you. That's the gospel. If you need to accept that for yourself, wear that for yourself in baptism, which celebrates the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. If you just need prayers this morning, we would invite you to respond as we stand together and worship.